Good morning. Welcome to, to Cultivate. Um, we call this our family gathering. You've heard that word thrown around a few times by now. Um, the reason that we use it is because we believe that we're the family of God because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we gather as the church. And so when you're here with us, you're among the church, not because we're in a building, not because it happens to be 10 a.m. on Sunday, um, but because we're, we get to be the people of God because of what God's done for us. So welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, we are, just to let you know, in, a, in the middle of a series, we're actually moving towards the end of it now, called Reasonable Doubt, where we're looking at some of our culture's major questions when it comes to things like faith, belief in God, Christianity, all, all the above, the Bible. And so we've hit on a number of topics up until now where we've been talking through many of these major struggles and issues that people have, and we're asking the question when it comes to each of them, does the faith that we hold to, those of us that are are convinced of it, hold up to reasonable doubt? And the the reason that we're putting it that way is because we really believe that um, the, the burden of proof is really on those who believe today, not on those who don't. There once was a time when um, the majority of the people believed in God, believed in the Bible, believed in the church, and it was the exception to the rule to be one of those people who didn't. Today, it's switched, right? And, and so today, it's, it's the norm to not believe any of those things or to believe something alternate to them. And so we really believe that we have to kind of uh, own up to and, and, and satisfy the burden of proof for those who don't believe. So even if you're here this morning and you're one of those people who doesn't believe, welcome. And we, we hope that uh, the way that we frame the conversation this morning helps you not only just to, to come to faith, which we lo- would love to see, um, but at least see a group of people who, who deeply believe in the Bible, deeply believe in what God has said to us, but do so with a tremendous amount of grace and love and, and humility uh, towards those who don't. So, uh, welcome this morning. Uh, we, last week we talked about the Bible and we asked the question, is it reliable? If you want to go back and, and listen to that, I think it's up on the podcast by now. But this week we're tackling a different question and, and that is this. Isn't Christianity kind of a straitjacket on life that takes away one's freedom? Isn't it a, a, a constricting thing that happens in life that, that takes away your ability to think and act for yourself. Many people have a doubt when it, comes about, when it comes to faith or belief in God, and they'll say something like this. In order to be a Christian, you need to have to believe the same way as everybody else does. You need to act the same way that everyone else does, and you need to not do the things that the Bible tells you not to do. And so everyone, here's what we believe, everyone should be free to determine for themselves what's true for them. And so Christianity, it takes away my freedom to think and to do what I want, to be able to determine for myself what's right and what's wrong. How could I possibly believe in a God if believing means I would lose my freedom to think for myself? Now, is that a doubt that you've heard? Probably, right? Um, and it may be a doubt that, that you believe. It's one that's pervasive in, in our culture. Many in our culture, and, and this might include you, have grown up with the idea that following Jesus means that you need to keep a whole list of rules. And there are at least ten of them on there, right? And probably a whole lot more. 
And if you transgress any of those rules, then man, you are in big trouble. I mean, big trouble, right? And so Christianity is a straitjacket then, right? That, that takes away your individuality and it stifles your independence. And, and just, I mean, being Mother's Day, um, I'll just kind of acknowledge this. That moms, um, if you don't believe this, many of your children do, if not all of them, right? And they may have said that to you, they may not have said it to you, but they believe it or their classmates believe it and they're being influenced by that point of view. So the question is, how do we respond? What do we say in light of those things? Well, I want to share three things with you, obviously, because this is a sermon, so you have to have three. You can't have two, you can't have four. It's always got to be three. So I don't know why that is, but it's just you learn that in school and, and that's the way th- things go. <laughs> so the, the, the first is this, is that in reality, truth is unavoidable. Truth is unavoidable. You can't avoid truth. It's, it's far more present than we give it credit. Um, but what is the relationship between truth and freedom? In, in our culture... When you say the word truth, uh, it's, it's, it's by and large meant or, or understood that truth is an experiential thing. It used to be that if you wanted to know what was true and what was right and what was wrong, you would look it up in a book, right? You, you would find out what the absolute is and then you would submit yourself to that truth. Well, if it's true for them, it's true for this person, it's true for me. But is that the case anymore? Not really. Truth is very experiential. And so what's true for you, as it's said in our culture, may not be true for me. And even when I look up something that we say is empirically true, I go to Wikipedia, which was done by some college kid in their basement while their mom was at work. So how can I take his opinion to be the the truth, right? Even that is kind of a shade of truth, and that tends to be what people believe. This, you may not realize this, but this is actually in our governing uh, as a nation because according to the Supreme Court, this is what it means to know truth. In 1992, they gave a ruling where they said, here's the, the relationship between freedom and truth, okay? This is what it means for our country. The heart of liberty is to define one's own concept of existence, the me- of the meaning of the universe. In other words, you hear what, is, what they're saying. Truth, or, or true freedom is to create your own truth. It's, it's to, to make your own meaning and purpose out of life. And if anyone or anything, any system comes along and tries to attempt to define truth for you, tries to say to you, here's what's right and here's what's wrong, don't do this and do this, then that's a limitation of your freedom. You should reject it at all costs. And this idea is everywhere. Do you ever wonder, though, where this idea came from? I mean, it's everywhere in culture, but nobody actually goes back and goes, I wonder where this idea is from. Well, there there was a, a French philosopher, his name was Foucault, and he says this, truth is a thing of this world. In other words, it's made up. It's produced only by multiple forms of constraint, And that includes the regular use of power. What he's saying there is this. Every time somebody claims to have the truth on something, 
What they're really doing is trying to exercise power over someone else. So if somebody tries to do that, reject it because you don't want to be suppressed by anybody because that's what it means to be free, according to our Supreme Court. It's a power play. They're trying to get control over someone else. And, and to be honest, this is the whole reason why people are very, very, very suspicious of any institution, including the church, today. I mean, they see a building on the side of a road with a steeple on it, and they go, that place is going to tell me what's right and wrong, and I don't necessarily want to agree with them, and so I'm going to stay away from the institution. That's the whole reason why there's suspicion over all kinds of those things. So if you claim to believe, as, as the church does, that the Bible is the true word of God, and we talked about that last week, and that everyone should believe it, what Foucault would say is that the only reason that you're promoting it as the truth is because you want to feel like you have power and authority over someone else. You're not doing it for the sake of others, but you're doing it to make yourself feel like you're morally superior to other people. You're just trying to justify yourself and ignore those who would believe differently that it isn't the Word of God. You see the suspicion in what he's saying there? Now, um, this happens to be a church, and um, I happen to be a pastor, and so you're probably anticipating that my next words are going to be to rail against this way of thinking. But here's the thing. What Foucault just said is exactly what Jesus said about a group of people who fundamentally believed the Bible and yet used it to oppress others. Do you know the name of those people? Yeah, they were called the Pharisees. Bible fundamentalists who believed in absolute truth. And, and what he says about them is, is shocking. He, he says about these people, the teachers and the Pharisees, these people who, who hold to this, they tie up heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for what? It's done for men to see. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi, a position of authority and power. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that many, many, many times people will follow a, a certain belief system. They will cling to it as ultimate truth and use it to suppress other people. And in Jesus' day, there were these people around that were doing that, and, he, and he, had, he reserved his strongest criticism for that very group of people. He said, you guys are falses. You're, he called them whitewashed tombs who look good on the outside, but on the inside are filled with dead men's bones. I mean, I don't know what, what hood you're from, but that's a pretty strong statement, right? That's worse than a yo mama joke, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> That's bad. I'm sorry. In other words, he's saying, look, the truth, it can be used to suppress people. It's out there. It's everywhere. And be careful of that, he's telling these people, of this group of people that are doing exactly that. But here's the problem. Um, 
Does that mean that we should just throw out this whole idea of truth at all? I mean, if, if it's always used to suppress people, what happens then if you insist that all truth should be thrown out and destroyed because it always inhibits freedom? There's a great little passage by C.S. Lewis in a book called The Abolition of Man. And he, he puts it great. He says this, You cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something else through it. For example, it's good that a window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. How, if you saw through the garden too, would you see anything? And then he says this. This is, this is a, a beautiful statement. A wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. In other words, if you say that all truth claims should, are, are all attempts to gain power, they should all be thrown out, then so is your statement, and that should be thrown out too. You've explained away your explanation. So to see through everything is simply not to see. To say that no one should ever claim to know truth ever Well, that's the biggest truth statement of all, right? See, truth is unavoidable, even by those who claim there is none. You have to believe in something, some kind of truth. And even if you don't believe you do, that is a truth that you believe in. You you submit yourselves to the same rules as everybody else. And, And so to say that there's absolutely no truth, well... That itself is a convenient way to get an advantage over those people who say that there is and to discard the contents of their claim. It's very easy to say, well, if I don't like what your particular claim of truth is, all I have to do is say, well, nobody should have any truth at all, and now I can completely disregard what's in your truth claim. You see, that's, that's a way to gain an advantage. It's a way to gain power. So what's important is, Not whether you believe or not that there's truth, but what's in your truth. And what kind of person, what kind of world will your truth create of you and of everyone else? Um, There's a group of fundamentalists that are very different from uh, the Pharisees that live in... I was just talking with somebody earlier who's going to to visit their, uh, their family in Lancaster, PA. There's a group of people that, by every definition of the word, are fundamentalists. Who am I talking about in Lancaster? Yeah. Why would you say that? You know? Uh, what what constant, like, they believe that there is absolute truth out there. Uh, and they hold to that truth probably closer than most groups that I've ever encountered. Right? I mean, would you agree? So, so the question would be, what kind of people is is their holding to truth creating for them? Um, recently, obviously, we're, we're still kind of dealing with the aftermath of it, but there was a, a shooting in Connecticut uh, at an elementary school called Sandy Hook. And uh, a lot of us are still, I think, very impacted by what those families had to go through. But it wasn't the first schoolhouse shooting that we've experienced as a country. There was one that happened before it in 2006 in the Amish community. Do you remember that? Anybody remember? Yeah. 
Um, where a gunman came into a single-room schoolhouse filled with little girls, and he took them all hostage for a day. And then before it was all over, he had shot ten of them and killed five. And then he went and shot himself. Tremendous tragedy. Now, what happened in the aftermath that made that story so engaging for so many people? Why was it in the headlines? Do you remember? Yeah. There were two things that happened. One, I don't know if you realize this, one of the little girls went forward before the gunman and said, I would like to sacrifice myself for the sake of my classmates. Just take me, kill me, hold me hostage, let everybody else go. Where would she get an idea like that? You know? And, And then in the days after it, you guys are exactly right, the families forgave the person who did this to them. In fact, they put their money behind it. I don't know if you remember this. They, the families who were affected in that community took up an offering to care for the widow and the children of the gunman. Where do you get an idea like that? See, it's not truth itself that suppresses people. It's what's in the truth. See, it's very difficult if you believe in the claims of Christianity to use it as a source of oppressing people. And I know that people have done it. Don't get me wrong. I'm aware of the history. But at the very same time, what's at the very core of the claim of truth that is behind Christianity is a man who goes to the cross for his enemies. A a man who used his very last breath to forgive those who were nailing him to the cross. And you see it worked out in the community, right? They believed in absolute truth, and that absolute truth led them to tremendous freedom when they were faced with a gunman who was gunning down children. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? See, it's not the truth itself that takes away freedom. Although truth can do that, and it has been done to do that, I understand all those things. But without truth, there is no freedom. In fact, Jesus himself said, Once you know the truth, the truth will what? It'll set you free. Um, I'll give you a a physical example of that. Um, When Mandy and I got married, we went on our honeymoon to an island in the Caribbean called St. Lucia. And um, at our resort, there was a bunch of different things that you could do as a couple um, that that they had to, to offer. And one of those things that I thought was really cool, but I had never done it before, was sailing. You could get on a catamaran that was, uh, you know, small, but, but still you could get out on the water and sail around, like, th- this area. And, um, and so we head down to the dock to, to pick up one of the boats, and I think, um, this is going to be a lot of fun. It, it happens to be free, so it's even better, you know. And, uh, and, and I get down there, and I expect that we're going to be there for a little while, and that the guy that's operating this place is going to take some time to teach us how to sail, before he sends us out into the wild ocean, right? Um, so we get down there, and he's like, you know, would you like to sail? Sure. Uh, which boat do you want? That one. Okay, he throws it in the water. We get on it, and he pushes us out to sea, and the last thing he says is, have fun. <laughs> and so, so I'm thinking, this is awesome. Like, th- this is really cool. And Mandy's like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, they... <laughs> They're going to have to come out on a boat and rescue us because this, this may go very badly, right? 
Um, but we're out there, and I'm getting the hang of the sails, and I'm getting the hang of the rudder, and, and we're moving, and, and I even got pretty good at, at kind of directing us where to go. And uh, in the Caribbean, there are all these, like, white spots in the, in the ocean where the coral underneath is white. And so we got, we got into this thing where we started to sail from white patch to white patch through the water. Hey, let's go visit that one, because you can see a little bit better than the darker spots. And so we thought, man, this would be cool. We'll sail up to each of the, the, these different places. And, and so we're doing this for a little bit of time. And all of a sudden, Mandy looks back at the, at the, the, um, the island, and it's, it's much farther away than I anticipated. <laughs> and not only that, but there, there's some of the darkest storm clouds I've ever seen in my life that are creeping up over the island. And so I'm going, uh-oh. <laughs> Here, you know, first-time sailor here, we, we need to get back to the island. And um, if you've ever sailed before, here, here's the thing that you need to know. Um, you can't sail into the wind. <laughs> I didn't know this. There apparently is something called the no-sail zone, and it's, a, it's about a 45-degree wedge where the, in the direction of the wind, and you can't sail within that 45-degree angle. Guess where the island was? <laughs> right in the center of that wedge. And I'm going, there's no way I'm going to be able to get back. Right? It, ultimately, we did. I, f- I figured out how to kind of zigzag back, which is one of the first rules that you should learn in sailing. Um, but why was I in trouble? Why, why were we in, in, a, in a bit of a, a pickle in, in that situation? Yeah. I was out of touch with the truth of how to sail a boat in the way that it was designed to be sailed. There were certain rules that I wasn't aware of, and yet I was subject to those rules, whether I realized it or not, right? I was subject to them. I needed to know what they were, and since then I've had a few sailing lessons, and I've become a much better sailor. I I can actually get to places that are difficult to, to get to. But I didn't know that back then. See, the modern idea that you need to get away from truth to get free is actually, or can be, very dangerous. Because there are rules out there. And if you transgress those rules, it is going to go very badly for you. Transgress the rule of gravity when you're at 30,000 feet. Things aren't going to go well, right? It's only in living in accordance with the truth that the truth begins to set you free. And, and so you say, okay, well, that's a great example of the physical world, but it, it's not, it doesn't apply to the moral kind of spiritual world, the personal realm. Here's the thing, it does. Because if you live for money, if money is your highest priority, if you do everything that you can to attain money and you spurn everybody else for the sake of it, for the acquisition of it, so that you can spend it, so that you can love it, you will become a shell of a person. And you will alienate everyone around you. Why? Because you've run into a truth that's every bit as real as the storm that I was facing out on the open ocean. You weren't designed to worship money that way. And if you do, you'll feel the very real consequences of your actions. See, truth is unavoidable. You can't get away from it. Secondly, this though is that freedom is a very complicated notion. Freedom is much more complicated than we give it credit for. Um, When I was in college, I had a a class, and it was 
one of the topics in that class was about freedom. And what I learned about freedom was this, at least this is what was taught in the class, that freedom equals the absence of restriction. Always. It is the absence of restriction. Every time somebody places a restriction on another person, that is the absence of freedom. The more freedom you have, the less restrictions you will have. But see, that's another oversimplification of what freedom means. Freedom is much more complicated than that. And in fact, there's an example of this in the Bible when Paul is talking to a church um, and he writes to them in this letter called Galatians and he says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You're free. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you're totally and absolutely free. You, my brothers, were called to be free. That's what it means to know Jesus, is to be free. But, there's always a but, right? Don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you hear that? You're free. In Christ, you're free from needing to prove your own worth to anyone, including yourself. You're free from having to measure up to the law and, 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 and do all those things that are on that long list that Christians often point to in order to be a good Christian. You're free from all of that. Totally free in Christ. But there are constraints that come with that freedom. And one of them is that those who are free must use their freedom to serve others in love. Later, he's going to say even that as you serve, in your service, you will experience freedom because you've lowered your your own standing for the sake of others. Freedom and restriction coexisting at the same time. How in the world can that be, right? Aren't they mutually exclusive ideas? You can't be limited and free at the same time. Let me give you a couple examples, though. Um... I'm not old enough to know this, but uh, I'll share from the experience of others that once you get to a certain age, you can't eat what you want to anymore. Um, I, I'm, I'm, probably, I'm probably older, you know, I'm probably in that area and I'm just in denial at this point. Because um, <laughs> my metabolism is slowing down rapidly day by day. Um, but you can't eat what you want. Why can't uh, you can, but why wouldn't you? What are those consequences? Yeah. If you, do it, if you eat poorly long enough, you actually, you actually take away the freedom of longer life and health, right? And so what a doctor will come and say to you is, you can't eat what you want anymore, and here's why. Because if you want the greater freedom of knowing a long and healthy life, you must restrict yourself today. Go ahead and eat what you want. I'm just warning you that if you do, you will restrict your freedom later. You cannot have it both ways. You can have one or the other. You get dominoes, you don't get to 90. You know? (laughs) I I said that because I had dominoes last night. (laughs) I'll give you another example. I I was talking with a dad this week who has a, a daughter that's college age, and, um, and she's running into the reality that in order to get the, the freedom that comes with education, she needs to limit herself today in terms of her time and her energy. And you, those of you who have older children know this, right? Limiting your, your time, your freedom today 
choosing not to do things which you believe would be free for you to do in order to gain an education and all the freedom that comes with it. You want a car, you want an apartment, you want independence from your parents, you get to the books today, right? Greater freedom comes with limitation. So you say, okay, well, it, freedom then always comes with, with discipline. It always comes with limitation. Well, that's not always true either. You, you need to be free in terms of the limitations that are specific for you. Discipline isn't always freeing. I'll give you an example. Um, if I were to come to you and say, I, my dream is to be an NBA center. And because I'm an American, I've gone to school and my teachers have told me, you can be anything that you want when you grow up. <laughs> Just try hard enough, practice enough, I mean, and you'll get there. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. What would you tell me? <laughs> yeah, right. You better find another dream fast, right? Because uh, things aren't going to go well for you. It doesn't matter how much you practice or discipline yourself. All the effort in the world will not lead to you being fulfilled by this dream. You would tell me I'm going to waste my life, right? Because I'm fighting reality. See, freedom isn't the absence or the presence of restriction. It's the presence of restrictions that fit with who you are designed to be. The truth of who God's made you to be. If you submit yourself to those rules which which are designed for you particularly, then you'll be free. Um, it, it wouldn't be freeing to throw a fish on the lawn and expect it to swim, right? But if you put a fish in the water, it is completely and utterly free in the restriction of water because that's the way that it was designed to go. The best example that I, I can think of how freedom and restriction coexist together, though, is love. It's love. Because love, here's the third point, is both constraining and liberating at the same time. See, you can't really be in love with anything without losing your independence. Guys, can I get an amen on that? I heard there was an app that says amen when you call for an amen. Does anybody have that? Because this would be a fantastic moment for it. No? Okay. We'll work on it later. <laughs> but if, if you want the freedom that comes with love, the fulfillment that comes with it, the security, the worth that you feel when you're in it, you must limit your freedom in all kinds of ways. You don't have to be married for very long to learn this, right? Um, uh, shortly after Mandy and I got married, I went uh, to work, and uh, as was my custom after I got out of work, um, I tended to decide if I wanted to go anywhere. I'd go to the, the driving range or, you know, uh, call up a friend and see what they'd like to do. And, um, and so I, I made some kind of pit stop on my way home. And I remember when I got home, um, the house had a chill to it. <laughs> Guys? Thank you. <laughs> There was a bit of a chill in the air. And, 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 and Manny's going, where in the world were you? See, you realize that with love comes restriction. 
you can no longer make decisions on your own anymore because you, you are now accommodating that person which you love. You take into consideration their wants and their desires and what they'd love to see. And when you're in love, do you do it because you're compelled to it? No, you do it because you enjoy it. I felt bad when I came home and I, I, I had not, uh, we had not communicated about our expectations. And from that point on, I didn't rebel against it and say, well, the heck with you. I said, well, I'll let you know, or I'll come home, or we'll decide in advance what, what we should do. Why? Because I love her, and I consider how she feels. See, a love relationship of any kind requires mutual loss of independence. It's the only way that you gain the benefits of love in return. Mutual loss of independence. And yet human beings at the very same time, this is the, the, the weird part about love, are most free and alive when they're in relationships of love, right? You watch somebody who's experiencing their first love. They look more alive than, than just about anybody because they're experiencing the freedom that comes with it. I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. He says this, love is the most liberating freedom loss of all. Totally true, right? Totally true. And, and see, here's the thing. The reason that most relationships fail, when they fail, is because they've failed to understand this, this universal truth, to be honest with you, that relationships require mutual sacrifice. It can't be one way, right? If you've ever been in a relationship that's been one way and you've given your time, your sacrifice, you've been the one to do that, and it hasn't been reciprocated, it's not a great relationship to be in, is it not? It's not fun. In fact, take it to its, its extreme, it turns into a form of slavery, right? I wasn't calling for it at that point, just saying that. But if you've ever been in a relationship like that, I'm just being completely straightforward and honest with you, it's worse than being alone, is it not? It only works if there's mutual surrender. And here's the thing, so I'm going to make a little bit of a switch here, um, that troubles many, many, many people about a relationship of love with God. Here's the thing that troubles them. They'll say something like this. I've limited my freedom in the past for the sake of a relationship. I gave up my independence for someone. I sacrificed, but what? The other person didn't. So the result of that, me going first, them not going at all, the result of that is that I felt used and exploited. See, and now we're talking about a relationship with God. I'm afraid of going back into that kind of relationship, particularly a relationship with God where it seems so one-sided. I'm afraid that if I did give my heart to God, that it would be exploited and I'd feel used all over again. See, at first sight, a relationship with God looks more like slavery than love. And that's one of the primary reasons why people rebel against it. It looks so one-sided. This one-sided sacrifice where God gets to tell you what to do because he has all the power. 
You do all the surrendering and God gives all the commands. You give up your independence and He sets the rules. Isn't that what it looks like from the outside? And when people think of that kind of relationship, their response, understandably, is, I want no part of that. There's no way I would be in a relationship like that. It's worse than being alone. I'll be alone. Thank you very much. And while this may be true of other religions, other truth claims, here's what you need to know. Please, please hear this. That it's not true of Christianity. Not with this God. In Christianity, we see a God who becomes a man and goes to the cross to reconcile you to himself. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. He says, Christ Jesus, God, who, became, who, who being in very nature God, he is God in every sense of the term, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Read that as something to be held on to and used to exploit those who would come to him. But he made himself what? Nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, he he comes to you and he says, I will be the one who loses my independence for you. I will be the one who surrenders my power. I will sacrifice. I will even go to the point where I'm exploited for you. I will lay my life down for you. Do you see it? He surrendered for you. All he asks is that you would join him in the dance of surrender. How could you ask more of a God than that? He did it so that you would know that he can be trusted. See, every other form of God, every other claim about who God is that isn't this God, it works exactly like your greatest fear. You do all the work, God sits back, and he receives all the blessing. You know how Christianity works? You sit, having been the one who who was unreconciled to God, God comes to you and does all the sacrificing, you sit and you receive the blessing. It's completely backwards from the way that most people think of a relationship with God. And let me tell you, to know this kind of love, to know this kind of God, this is the most liberating love that there is. In fact, you may not realize this, it's the very reason that God created you to exist in the first place, was to know this kind of love. When um, Laura mentioned the the book of John uh, earlier when she was talking about Jesus and and how he reconciled a mother to a son in in this new family relationship, if if you go way back to the very beginning of the book, he's introducing Jesus for the very first time and he says something that would have been shocking to the people that first heard him speak. He starts out his letter and he says this, In the beginning was the Word. Now, I know that doesn't strike you as being anything of a particular importance, but that word for word is the word logos. It's where we get our word logic from. And what it means is it's a Greek term, and in that day it meant the very existence, the the very reason for existence. The reason that the world exists, the reason that, 
the, the cosmos is there, the reason that you're here. And, and there, just the, the context of the day is there would have been a, a ton of these philosophers and they would have gathered all the time. They, in fact, they did gather all the time to, to discuss what is the reason that we exist. Why are we here? What is it that we're to know? Why, why are we formed in the first place? You look at the fish in the ocean and it's clear that the reason that they're there is to swim. It's, it's to be in their environment and, and to, to move through it with grace and power. That's the reason that they exist. Why are we here? They would have been asking this question constantly. And so John, he comes along with this letter about Jesus and he says, when we find the reason that we exist, here's what we'll experience. We'll experience true freedom. There is a reason that you exist. And when you find it, you'll be free. And the reason that we were made was to know a person. He he goes on to say, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The reason that the world exists, the reason that you're here is God. And that Word, that reason for being became flesh and made His dwelling among us. In other words, the reason that you exist is to know the one whom all things are created for. And he says that, he goes on to even say more than that. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You hear what he's saying? The reason that you're here, the reason that you exist is because you were made to know a person who came and made his home among us full of grace And yes, truth. You were made to know Him. You were made to love Him. You were made to serve Him and to enjoy Him forever. And just like any love relationship, when you enter into this relationship, you begin to consider the desires of the other person. You begin to change. Um, When I was young and um, we as young guys were making a transition from girls having cooties to girls being, like, interesting. <laughs> you remember when that, ha- that shift happened, right? Um, it happens for all guys at some stage. And, uh, and that shift was happening for us, and we started to get really interested in these, these women who were very unlike us guys. And, um, it, and along with that shift came some, a fear for every young guy and I don't know if it's, kind of, if it's put the same way today as it was back then, but the greatest fear of every young man when they give their heart away to a young lady is that when they do so, they would become whipped. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> see, from the outside, they, they, they see a, a young man start to, to have affinity for a young lady, And when they do so, they begin to undergo some drastic changes. They they start to take showers, (laughs) right? They start to root through their dad's cabinets for like 20-year-old cologne, you know? They make changes. And and then all their friends go, what in the world is up with you? Well, I don't know. know. They don't want to admit what it is because if they admit what it is, then all their friends will then respond to them, Oh, I get it. She's got control over you, right? 
See, from the outside, it looks like that young man is making changes because he's under the control of someone else. How does it feel when you're in the inside of a relationship like that? You're making all the changes because you want to, uh, you want to be closer to the other person. The reason that you shower is so that they won't go, get away from me, right? But you'll be drawn in because there'll be something attractive about you. See, on the inside of a love relationship, you make all kinds of changes. Why? Because you love and you care about the other person. You make those changes freely. Not bec- and, and they've probably never even asked you to make changes, and you're making tremendous change in your life for the other person. The reason you do it is because of love. See, when you begin... To, to love another, you begin to live for them and not just for you anymore. You're compelled to change your behavior, not because the other person sets some kind of rule book for you, but because out of love for them, you begin to change. And it's the most liberating changes that you'll ever make in life, right? Those are the changes that stick over time. Paul, when he's talking to the church uh, in a city called Corinth, He compares this kind of change. It's amazing what he says, so don't miss this. He says this, For Christ's love compels us. The love of Christ compels us. You know what that word compel means? To be restrained. It's to limit yourself. It's to make drastic changes that are in direct conflict to your freedom. Why in the world would you make those kinds of changes if you could be free? Here's why. Because we're convinced that one died for all, and all therefore have died. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and who was raised again. One of the indications that you actually understand what God has done for you is that you naturally begin to change so that you would live for him and not just for yourself. And the reason that you do that is because you were so wrapped up in the love of Christ, his, his, His life on this earth, His death for you on the cross, taking the place of your sins, taking that penalty upon Himself, and then rising again to give you new life so that you could be reconciled to the very reason that you exist on the earth. You look at all that He's done for you and you say, I will go wherever you want me to go. I will do anything that you want me to do. I will be compelled to to any length because of the love of Christ. Do you know, do you really know that you are loved? God himself has come and surrendered for you. He's been exploited for you. And when you understand that, then his love, it's going to fill your heart. And you will feel at the very same time, here's the the weird part about it, you will feel the freedom from living for anything else but him. All of a sudden, when you know his love, you no longer live for your job. You no longer live just to be a great mom because you're a great daughter now. And you get to be a great mom because of what he's done for you, not just because you're expected to. You start to make all kinds of changes and, and you, you begin to live for nothing else but Him. And at the very same time, you begin to get restrained, constrained 
to love others in his name. Are you free? The way that you'll know is that you'll begin to choose to please him for all that he's done for you. Not because you have to. Please don't hear that. It's not a list of rules. If you're submitting to him because out of guilt or shame or fear, none of those things are the gospel. The gospel is we who were once enemies of God, he came and died for us to set us free and therefore we live for him. It's not a have to, it's a get to. And I hope that you're experiencing that. If, if not, it's because you probably have not come to, to terms with the love of God and, and, the, and the, the enormity to which he has loved you. He loves you. Do you hear that? I hope that you do. Let's pray. Father, I, I realize that in a, a day and age where truth is, uh, is not popular, that your words still ring true, which is if we know the truth, the truth will set us free. And so thank you, God, that the truth that we know is not a set of rules, it's not a list of principles, it's not a 12-step stel- a, a program. The truth is a person. And so we thank you, God, for that person. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to this world to live among us, to reveal the reason that we live, and to set us free. I pray, God, for freedom, that you would set us free from all the other things that we live our lives for, and that you'd set us free to live a life for you. Not because you enslave us, but because you free us. Thank you for that freedom that comes through the gospel. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.